Digital Gonzo, episode 73, dated Sunday the 6th of May, 2012. Gonzo Planet Audio Magazine, volume 2. This is the second collection of audio articles posted by myself and the Freelancers Guild on the Gonzo Planet website. So if you missed these the first time around, here they all are in one handy package. I'm also here to make a special announcement. The first annual meeting of the Gonzo Planet community now has a date and a venue. The Gonzo Planetary Expo, or GPLEX 2012, will be taking place on the last weekend of July. It will be starting at the Holiday Inn Smallbrook Queensway in Birmingham City Centre on Saturday the 28th of July at midday, and it will be going on until 8pm. On the forums, we'll be organising retro and contemporary gaming sessions with consoles and handhelds. Gary Blower is planning out tabletop gaming, so you can take the rare advantage of getting like-minded people in a room together. There will be a live podcast recording in the first ever Never Mind the Buzz Geeks pub quiz. We will be conducting a pile of shame raffle and asking everyone to bring in and donate at least one of their old games for that, with all proceeds going to Child's Play, the charity set up by Penny Arcade, which provides toys and games for children in hospital. We'll also be holding a grand charity auction, and many, many community members have already pledged to bring in their shelf candy, tasty special editions, art books, t-shirts, and one N7 edition of Mass Effect 3. I've had several geek clothing websites donate pieces for these already, so if you or an organisation that you know would be willing to do the same, then please let me know on gonzoplanet at gmail.com. The Midlife Gamers put on something like this at Eurogamer last year, and taking part in that got me thinking I'd love to organise a similar event with you guys. So thank you for the ideas, Midlife Gamers. And on the Sunday, those of us who stayed in Birmingham overnight will be trooping down to the cinema to see The Dark Knight Rises as a group. Now, my backstage team and I have paid for the room at the inn already. It costs us £550, and it will accommodate up to 50 people for the day. Now, we reckon we can get... 50 of you guys to attend. As of today, we have 23 confirmed, but that was before I announced it on this podcast. In purely financial terms, the more of you attend, the less everyone has to pay. To clear the expense pot on the room for 25 people will cost us £22 each. If we get 50, that drops to £11 each, and it's on a sliding scale. And of course, we're going by the older ditch of the more the merrier. So the most sensible thing to do would be to get as many people confirmed as possible, then simply divide 550 by that many people and open up the pot. You will of course have to factor in transport up or down to Birmingham and most likely accommodation for the night. Then if you want to come see Batman with us, there'll be a separate pot for that because we obviously have to book those in advance, not just show up on the day and ask for 40 seats next to each other at the biggest film of 2012. Possibly the second biggest, we don't know yet. However, odds are we were all going to see Batman in the cinema this year anyway, so this probably won't be an undue expense for most people. And it is, of course, optional. Some of the greatest, most fun and most fulfilling experiences in my adult life have been PAX and Eurogamer, and it's always because of the rare and powerful energy that results from the meeting of many geeks. I want to bring that feeling to Gplex. Back when Tony and I were the Digital Cowboys, we managed to get a group of 12 together at Alton Towers, Recording the live podcast that night was more fun than any of the roller coasters that day. Possibly except for Rita, that thing was insane. But we've already got double those numbers confirmed. If we get four times that, then at the very least it will be a colossal achievement getting so many of you guys in one room. But we're also going to end up raising a lot of money for the kids. 
I'm thinking we should play some rock band too, dress in our most awesome t-shirts and really capture that PAX feeling, which today is not available in the UK. Mike, Jerry, get on it. Gplex is a self-catering day, so everyone will be free to filter in and out and refresh. At 8pm when we disperse, there'll doubtless be various groups going to pubs, clubs and restaurants, and we may end up organising a breakfast or two for the Sunday. For all the information you need on this, jump onto the forums at Gonzo Planet and go to the section on Gplex. Make sure that if you want to be there that you get yourself confirmed on the list and keep tabs on when the pop for your metaphorical tickets will open up. Many thanks to everyone who helped organise this on the forum. We decided Birmingham was a nice central point in the UK and not too far from everyone, and that July would be not too close to PAX, Eurogamer and indeed Dorka Patooza. So I hope that as many of you as possible can make it. In the event that more than 50 want to come, we'll probably have to have another podcast announcement and have to switch rooms at the inn. Also, any ideas and suggestions for what you want to see there would be greatly appreciated. So see you in 12 weeks and enjoy the show. Here's James Batchelor with the Nintendo Difference. The Nintendo Difference. 3DS. So far, so good. Ish. This is The Nintendo Difference, a Gonzo Planet audio column written and produced by James Batchelor. The Nintendo Difference explores a number of topics surrounding the veteran video games company, and for this month's edition, I will be looking at what is easily the most talked about topic this year, the launch of the Nintendo 3DS. The next generation handheld was first announced in March last year, first unveiled a few months later at A3 2010, and finally arrived on shelves in Japan in February this year. In March it launched in the European US, and so began the 3DS's long, hard campaign to win over gamers and industry professionals alike. In this column I will be discussing what progress it has made during its first year, its shortcomings and its successes, and glimpsing briefly at its future. The games industry, games media and gaming consumers have had a strange, long-winded and almost cyclical relationship with the 3DS. At the start of the year it was a device we lusted after. Press conferences in January detailing the regional launches, the initial lineup of software and the handheld's features teased us with hints of what was to come and many a nostalgic fanboy felt the same thrill of anticipation that came before the launch of the original DS and the Game Boy Advance. Pre-order numbers soared as retailers clashed over price, battling to get more and more customers reserving the eagerly awaited handheld, hoping that it would be a major shot in the arm for a games market that was slowing to a crawl as the life cycle of the home consoles was stretched beyond its traditional limits. With so many longing for the 3DS, the industry, the gamers and even Nintendo got caught up in the hype and when it arrived, it didn't quite live up to everyone's expectations. Sales were healthy, but slightly behind what pre-order numbers had prepared us for. There were plenty of good quality games to choose from, but it was ultimately an uninspiring lineup made up primarily of ports and remakes of previous titles, the 12-year-old Rayman 2, the ageing mobile title Asphalt, a carbon copy of a previous Ridge Racer title, and Splinter Cell Chaos Theory, a title that had been present at the launch of the original DS six years ago. Even Pilot Wings Resort lacked that feeling of new, thanks to its copy-paste Woohoo Island setting. There was nothing that screamed immediate purchase, even for the most devout of Nintendo's followers. And the 3D effect, initially a selling point, found itself turned off by many 3DS owners within minutes as they returned to using their handheld as a more traditional gaming advice. 
Some claimed the 3D made games like Pilot Wings Resort more confusing, while others cited headaches and eye strain when using the 3D effect after just 10 minutes, reports that naturally the UK tabloids were quick to jump on and exacerbate. But for every red top exaggeration, a shred of truth remained. The 3D novelty wore off far too quickly for too many people. This disappointment soon seeped into the game's media, with many websites displaying a brazen anti-Nintendo agenda in their coverage of the 3DS's progress. While it could not be denied that the device wasn't selling as well as expected, observations that it was being outsold by the PSP in Japan were unnecessarily scathing. Had such a trend occurred in Western markets, even Nintendo's loyal fans would be up in arms, wondering what had gone wrong. But the PSP has long since been the dominant gaming platform in Japan, often outselling all other consoles combined, so while its lead over 3DS was unfortunate, it was not in any way inconceivable. Maintaining momentum after the initial launch is a problem for any new gaming format, and one that the 3DS was the latest to struggle with. The best strategy is usually to have a steady line of decent titles due for release until your next AAA killer app, and Nintendo tried this with its self-titled Launch Window, the notion that everything between the 3DS's debut and the release of Ocarina of Time was to be counted as a single launch period. The idea was solid enough, but the result was that as little as a week after the 3DS arrived, potential buyers and most owners still felt like they were waiting for something. Something that releases like Steel Diver, which was a tech demo for the original DS, puzzle games and a criminally cut down version of Lego Pirates of the Caribbean couldn't live up to. It was a long, slow crawl until The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time 3D landed on shelves, and many questioned if it was worth the wait. After all, it was yet another re-release of an N64 game that every Nintendo owner played back in 1998, not to mention countless re-releases since then, but for some it was a title that best showed off the potential of the 3DS and its 3D effects. The summer of 2011 was gaming drought for every format. With so few releases, particularly after the first half of June, even the established consoles and handhelds struggled to retain consumer interest and continue driving sales. For the likes of the 360, the PS3 and the Wii, this was just another traditional summer lull, one they would recover from in the September to Christmas Blitz. For the 3DS, it was a devastating gaping void that failed to draw in new buyers and made many 3DS owners forget their new handheld. Interest was boosted momentarily by the launch of the eShop, the digital marketplace where 3DS users could download a mixture of original DSiWare games and classic handheld titles from the original Game Boy. This was Nintendo's big chance to show it could compete with the XBLA and the PSN in a way that the Wii Shop channel has never quite seemed to manage, but there were two major flaws. First was the fact that it took until late May to launch the eShop, two long months after the handheld's initial release in the US and Europe, and three months after its debut in Japan. In this increasingly download-focused world, a world unlike that which the original DS and the Wii launched into, Nintendo desperately needed to show they could compete, and having a digital service available on day one would have been instrumental in doing so. Second was the content. While the virtual console titles and rejigged 3D classics were appealing enough, Nintendo still remains the only one of the three format holders to have a compelling back catalogue. The DSiWare titles showed how much Nintendo still has to learn about not only the download market, but the portable download market. While the titles available were of reasonably high quality, the prices were undeniably deterrent. Nintendo had sensibly dropped the Wii Points, DS Points, Nintendo Points system that it previously used on its Wear services and revealed the true costs, but these would have probably been less jarring if they were disguised by such virtual currency. Initial titles such as RPG Zanonia and PopCap Classic Plants vs. Zombies were as much as ten times more than what they cost on the dominating Apple App Store. In the case of the former, the choice came down to 69p for the iPhone version or £5.40 for the 3DS.
It's a shame because even some games journalists will tell you that there are absolute gems on the eShop, easily comparable to the acclaimed hits of the XBLA and PSN, but no one will ever discover them while they are so expensive. As the empty summer dragged on, it became clear that the 3DS's lineup we'd been presented with might not see any vast improvement in the short term. July 2010, people were still scrolling through the list of more than 70 games Nintendo had confirmed were in development, including high-profile names such as Resident Evil, Metal Gear Solid, Saints Row, Assassin's Creed, Batman, and of course all the Nintendo favourites, Mario, Mario Kart, Paper Mario, Star Fox, Kid Icarus and Pokemon. July 2011, and news had emerged that many of these titles were being delayed or canned altogether. DJ Hero 3D fell when Activision culled the Hero franchise in February. Resident Evil Revelations was continuously pushed closer and closer to a 2012 release, as was Metal Gear Solid 3. Development never even started on Saints Row Drive-By, and any work that had been done on Assassin's Creed Lost Legacy was transformed into the home console title Revelations. And Kid Icarus Uprising, the title that had served as Nintendo's flagship for 3DS at the handheld's initial reveal, was now taking a backseat to first-party remakes. It was a bleak time for 3DS, but early August brought about a much-needed change, a price cut. Nintendo does not set prices for its games or its hardware. It sets a trade price at which retailers can buy its stock, and leaves stores to create their own pricing. At release, the High Street had deemed that the 3DS would be worth anywhere up to £230. This was brought down in pre-order offers and bundles, but ultimately it was difficult in August to find the 3DS anywhere for less than 200 On August 12th, Nintendo lowered the trade price by one-third, thus by extension lowering the retail price. Almost immediately, the 3DS plummeted from a £200 price tag to £160, £150 and even as low as £115 in supermarkets. Those who had bought the handheld at launch grumbled, understandably. The offer of free downloadable virtual console games, dubbed by Nintendo as the 3DS Ambassador titles, went some way to pacifying those who had dropped a hefty chunk of their savings on the handheld, but there was no disguising what my Game Burst co-host Neil Taylor likes to call the early adopter tax. But, more importantly, this is where the 3DS's sales began to lift, and subsequently its fortunes change. There still wasn't a great deal being released that would have 3DS owners rushing into stores, but releases became more regular in September, with the likes of Star Fox 64 3D, Driver Renegade, FIFA, and so forth. Exclusives may have been few and far between, but the 3DS was now able to cash in on the September to Christmas hits in the same way that the DS and GBA had done so before it, offering portable companions to the console's big hitters. Nintendo even drummed up interest with the release of new colours, a tactic the platform holder was well versed in using to boost hardware sales, but had rarely used so early in a device's lifespan. Sure enough, the release of the metallic red and even a female-oriented coral pink 3DS did their part to coax potential buyers that had previously been on the fence. By this point, even the media's attitude had changed. A far cry from the PSP outsells 3DS headlines that had dominated websites back in March, now the tables had turned, with many reporting that 3DS was outselling PSP in Japan. And with the help of a few strategic releases of stats from Nintendo, journalists began comparing the 3DS to the original DS at the same point in its own lifespan, and lo and behold, the 3DS was actually slightly ahead. It was encouraging stuff, although as a colleague of mine pointed out, you would have hoped for slightly more progress given the strength of the DS brand when the 3DS launched. The DS did not have that luxury. Even Nintendo's attitude had undergone a dramatic transformation. Rather than focusing on the 3D effect, the initial selling point for the handheld, it now commissioned ad campaigns dedicated to raising awareness of the handheld's other features. The eShop, 
the online functionality, SpotPass, and most importantly, the ever-popular StreetPass, all functions that many 3DS owners had touted as even more impressive than the 3D slider. And as with many Nintendo platforms, things really kicked off when Mario arrived. The portly plumber jump-started the GameCube a few months after its launch with Super Mario Sunshine, and stunned critics with the original Super Mario Galaxy, which was released almost a full year after the Wii's debut. Nintendo's mascot rolled up on the 3DS in not one but two titles, Super Mario 3D Land in November and Mario Kart 7 this month. The former was hailed by critics as yet another platforming masterpiece, while the latter is said to be one of the greatest entries in the Mario Kart series to date. Crucially, here were two titles that truly showed what the 3DS was capable of that weren't remakes of past Nintendo titles or ports of cheaper mobile games. Some would argue that such titles should have been released a lot earlier, with more titles of equal or better quality to follow them, but it's easy to forget that the original DS had just a slower year in terms of must-have software. In the first year of the original DS, we saw a Mario remake, a new Mario Kart, the first Nintendogs, a sequel to Advance Wars, plus third-party exclusives like Sonic Rush and the first of many Castlevania titles. Comparatively, in the first year of 3DS, we've had a new Pilot Wings, a Zelda remake, a Star Fox remake, a new Mario platformer, a new Mario Kart, a Pokemon spin-off in Super Pokemon Rumble, a new Nintendogs, plus third-party titles like a dedicated version of Super Street Fighter 4, and Resident Evil spin-off Mercenaries. It's not yards ahead of the first DS, but it's certainly not falling behind. At the time of recording, the 3DS has sold more than 3 million units in Japan since February, and 7 million units have been shipped worldwide. It is on track to at least match the success of its game-changing predecessor, and even in danger of selling out by Christmas. Looking forward, we have Resident Evil Revelations and Luigi's Mansion 2 in the first few months of 2012, although it will obviously take more than strong software to truly make the 3DS the success we thought it would be, especially with PS Vita on the way. Ultimately, it's very easy to criticise the 3DS, and with good reasons, many of which I've discussed here. The lack of sales driving games, the delayed and overpriced online system, the short novelty of the 3D gimmick. There are a few redeeming factors, and it's important to remember that the 3DS launched into a handheld market completely different than the one its forebear entered, i.e. one dominated by cheaper but high-quality and hugely popular smartphone titles, where the very existence of a dedicated gaming handheld is questioned. But even an avid Nintendo fan like me can't deny it's been a shaky start. Not a fatal one, and certainly not an irreversible one, but one far more troubled than we would have believed this time last year. And yet, to refer to that cyclical relationship I mentioned at the start, we now enter 2012 with a much more kind of hopeful look at the 3DS. So what can Nintendo do to redeem the 3DS and make its next generation handheld the phenomenon that so many of us wanted it to be? Well, I'll be offering my thoughts on that in the January edition of the Nintendo Difference, where I'll be offering a few suggestions on what Nintendo's New Year's resolutions should be. Until then, I wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. listening to the internet news welcome there's been a sustained panic on the internet for many hours today which began when several pages of wikipedia caught fire last night on the scene oddle cake chimney theft reports 
The blaze broke out at 10pm London time. Early reports suggest that a page on the subject of fuel was left too close to one of oxidising agents and both overheated when a man in Dubai used Wikipedia to look up fire. The flames spread quickly to other websites being viewed by people with multiple tabs open. YouTube alone lost over 700 videos from their section on pets reacting to their reflection and there have been countless cases of third degree burns to the Facebook. Professional teams have contained the blaze for now, but Wikipedia cannot be accessed without installing appropriate firewalls. We spoke to a woman affected by the incident. She was so shaken by her ordeal that the following interview is barely intelligible. Let me get on the Facebook please, the danger of internet fire is that left unchecked it can wreak untold damage across every site you've ever looked at. Potentially, if someone were to Google a blaze of this size, it could spread across the entire internet. Specialized online fire teams can contain the flames by passing a cooling gel down the series of tubes in the foundations of the page, but this gel is expensive to manufacture and conservative figures state that supplies will be depleted before red tube could be saved. Independent shopping website Amazon.com have spent the morning reinforcing the warehouses where their ebooks are stored. Ebooks are at particular risk due to the electronic paper they are printed on, which nullifies the effects of both kinds of fire extinguisher. There is also a danger of microfires being spread via Twitter. A single retweet from somebody with enough followers could burn away half the world's memes in just 23 minutes. And the internet news is going to remain at the scene for the rest of today, bringing you updates every hour. Coming up next, more panic in Lisbon as Minister for Housing goes feral. Accusations of steroid abuse for the British Olympic gymnastics team. And a possible resolution of the trial of the man who ate David Cameron. See you shortly. This has been a Gonzo Planet production of the Internet News. For thoroughly inspirational slices of televisual news coverage, find and purchase DVDs of the day-to-day -day and Brass Eye. Next up, Michael Fox of The Little Metal Dog Show. Hello, someone must have been listening to me last time because uh, for some inexplicable reason I've been invited back to talk more about board games. If you don't know who I am, uh, my name's Michael Fox and I run The Little Metal Dog Show, one of the world's biggest board gaming podcasts. Yes, they do exist. Last time I talked about games that are sort of gateways into the hobby, the kind of things that you could play with pretty much anybody, just to sort of gauge an interest and see if they would actually really, really get into some of the heavier stuff. But today I want to sort of take it a little bit further. In fact, probably too far for many, many people. But who knows? It could prove interesting. I want to talk about design. It's something I've been doing an awful lot of recently. As in 2012, I'm planning on opening my own company called Sprocket Games, which will hopefully end up publishing at least two titles this year. When I think back to the 80s and sort of the video games that I was playing, a whole load of them were actually just coded by one bloke sitting in a bedroom. There are legendary stories of people like Matthew Smith putting in hour upon hour upon hour coding Manic Miner all on his own. 
Of course, nowadays, games are a much bigger business, with teams of often, you know, 50 or 100 people all working on the same thing, all having their own small, small section, with maybe only a couple of people having this big overview of what the final product's going to look like. When you're designing board games, though, it's a much more solitary thing. I can't imagine more than, you know, a couple of people coming together in order to create one of these things. Over the last few months where I've been designing my own games, the vast majority of them have been solo efforts. There's one that was collaborative that I was really, really happy with, and with luck that should be seen by the general public this year. But most of the time it's just me, big pile of cardboard, some scissors and some markers, or tapping away on a keyboard, desperately trying to get these ideas out of my head and into some sort of tangible form. I imagine a load of people who are listening to this, when they were kids, they actually made up their own games. It happens a lot. Many people who I've spoken to have admitted to coming up with some sort of dodgy roll-and-move type snakes and ladders rip-off when they were five. Or on the other end of the spectrum, these massively complicated things that nobody in their right mind would play at all. Because there's just far too many rules, and the only person who knows how to play them is the person who came up with it. And even then, you're probably making up stuff halfway through anyway. However, now that I'm doing this as basically a job, it hits the basis of both being terrifying and brilliant. After all, I'm making up games all day. Admittedly, the next step is to try and actually make some proper money out of it, but we'll see what happens in 2012. The terrifying bit, though, is actually getting those ideas out there. A major part of design is actually getting other people to play your games. Sure, you can sit around a table with your friends and family and say, hey, look, I've made this game. Can we play it? And then at the end, everybody's going, oh, well done, congratulations, it's wonderful. Because those are the people who do not want to cut you down. What you really need is to send your babies out there. There's an old writer whose name I cannot remember for the life of me who had this idea of kill your children. Not literally, obviously. That would be a bad thing. But sending your creations out into the big bad world is a really scary thing to do. I'm lucky enough that I've managed to build up a network of people who can test games for me. What's even scarier is that they kind of look forward to this experience. I have no idea why. But I'm still absolutely terrified any time I see an email pop up in my inbox that says the word feedback about game X on it. However, it's something that you've got to do. In this world, you've got to be able to take the criticism. You've got to take the rough with the smooth. And if something in a game doesn't work, even if you think it's fantastic, if everybody else thinks it's crap, you've got to cut it. If something doesn't work, you've got to listen to people. The trick is knowing when to stop, knowing when to say that something's finished, taking that step back, saying that it's finished, and not touching it ever again. I wouldn't have got to that step, though, if I hadn't decided one day to just put pen to paper and just go for it. So here, today, as you're listening to this, I encourage you to just try it. If you've ever had an idea for a game, why not try and make it? You can always drop me an email with your ideas. I promise I won't steal them. In fact, I'll do my best to help you try and make them better. My email address is michael at littlemetaldog.com. And seriously, if you've got ideas, I'd love to see them. You get this incredible feeling when you create something from its bare bones upwards. I've done it, and I encourage you to do the same. See you next time. James Perkins of GeekWad with a review of a terrible movie. The Darkest Hour 3D. The Darkest Hour is a sci-fi film released in UK cinemas on the 13th of January 2012. A sci-fi horror film where travelling during the day is more dangerous than at night. The complete opposite of what you usually expect from the genre. The premise of The Darkest Hour is that invisible aliens made of microwave energy come down to Earth to salvage all of the masses of energy that we possess on the planet. 
Their aim is split into three steps. One, seize the planet. Two, drain all energy. Three, destroy all life. And as with any alien invasion movie, they just happen to land on Earth, the most populated known planet in the universe. The story begins with two friends and business partners, Sean, Neil Hirsch, and Ben, Max Minghella, heading to Moscow, Russia, to present their idea to the bosses of the company. The thing is, their idea has been stolen, and they're pissed. To drown their sorrows, they head to a local nightclub, where they meet two American girls by the names of Natalie, Olivia Thirlby, and Anne, Rachel Taylor, whom they start to try and chat up. While at the bar, they notice the Swedish boss, Skylar, Joel Kinnaman, who stole their idea with his girlfriend just as the shit hits the fan. The lights cut out and everyone proceeds to go outside and stare at the strange lights falling from the sky. At this point, I had my head in my hands. Not only would you think, hang on, something really strange is happening here, but I'm pretty sure that you would try to run away as it could be something really dangerous. See the fat bus driver running away from the tripod in the 2005 version of War of the Worlds. As the crowd gathers outside the nightclub and around the strange ball of light that has fallen from the sky, a policeman proceeds to prod it with his baton and quickly becomes the first victim of their ability to disintegrate all life forms. Cue mass panic, screaming and running for the hills. As the film progresses, we learn more about the invaders and how they proceed to search out life forms. The survivors find out ways to shield themselves from the aliens and eventually fight back. Product Placement Product placement is a common thing in movies, TV shows and video games in the current age. But in those forms of media, you expect to see one or maybe two products dropped in there for contingency purposes to keep it real. But the Darkest Hour 3D has so many product placements that I physically lost count, and that was just in the first ten minutes. But instead of subtly dropping these in, the billboards, shops and advertisements got more screen time at the beginning of the movie than the main actors. For example, the taxi that Sean and Ben were in when they were travelling to the meeting went past McDonald's and the camera pulled back to focus on the logo for a long three seconds. 3D. Was it necessary? A big part of the film is supposed to be the 3D element, as 3D is included in the title. But if I am honest, throughout the majority of the movie, I actually forgot that the film was shot in 3D. The 3D in The Darkest Hour is beyond a joke. It is nothing more than a means to hype up the film, to the masses that enjoy 3D and think that it's cool, and to add an extra £1.50 or 2 bucks to your cinema ticket price because of the 3D glasses. It sickens me to see this in the film industry today, filmmakers trying at any cost to grab as much money from your pockets as they can by very poorly adding the 3D effect. Even the 3D in Resident Evil Afterlife was done better than this. I know that since the new breed of 3D entertainment began, there has been a raging debate as to whether 3D is necessary or not. And in this film's case, that answer is most definitely no. Best Bits As with any alien invasion movie, I really enjoy seeing the first contact and how the human race reacts to it. Usually it results in mass panic, and I wasn't disappointed with the outcome of this one. The mass of death that the alien invaders rain down upon the humans is always pretty cool, and most of the time well done by the filmmakers. 
The alien's ability to disintegrate is similar to the tripods in War of the Worlds 2005, where they can destroy the human life form with one fell swoop of their death ray. Cinema, rental or skip? In my honest opinion, if you enjoy basic and fun alien movies, then check this out, but do not spend your hard-earned money on the cinema ticket. Don't get me wrong here, I think the idea of the film is pretty cool, but the execution just wasn't there for me. Wait until it's released on Blu-ray later in the year, give it a rent, and enjoy it with a beer, nachos, and friends, as, at the end of the day, it is still a good bit of fun. 5 out of 10. The 41-year-old virgin who knocked up Sarah Marshall and felt super bad about it. A non-review. This is not a review because the subject does not qualify as a film. You're listening to Digital Gonzo, and I am angry. Looking at the Valentine's Day naughty movies from 99p sale on the PSN was truly depressing. Some of the dumbest film suggestions I've ever seen. Zombie strippers, Sony? Seriously? It's like their estimation for women who are in a romantic mood and having to strong-arm their men into watching a film they want to is below gutter level. If I were female, I'd write them a strongly worded letter and then come back here and finish this article. The Worst Offender was a movie I had not heard of until now. The 41-year-old... Don't let me say it again. One, yes, it's one of those. Two, yes, I do see the irony in making a feeble parody of Judd Apatow's amusing, often smart, touching, and occasionally even quite excellent comedies, though it's clear the makers did not. And three, yes, I checked its Rotten Tomatoes rating. Three reviews since 2010 for this straight-to-DVD piece of shit. All rotten. This film has 0% freshness. utterly flabbergasted that pictures like this still get made. It's an unthinkable waste of time and money. As Paul Shotton said accurately, hitting the nail on the head, bad action films are at least sometimes unintentionally hilarious, but nobody's ever been unintentionally thrilled by a bad comedy. What galls me most is that I could have written and directed a film on the same budget with the same actors and sets. I could be of some use to the cinematic industry, both on an artistically creative and financial level. If it was just an improvised mockumentary about making a bad comedy, it would be more funny and honest than the utter bilge I have seen of the same ilk as this. My frustration is in the talentless cretins who get the go-ahead on this sort of project, insofar as the word project applies to the cinematic equivalent of being read endless Christmas cracker jokes by your terminally flatulent great-uncle, whilst I languish in unemployed obscurity. How do they even get their break? Have a listen to the following trailer to remind yourself as to what these films are like. Andy Spitzer has lost a lot of girlfriends. Pretty awesome, huh? But there's one thing he's never lost. Virgin's life. What? Well, it all what makes sense now. Andy's a virgin. No, I'm not. Oh, yeah? Why is he wearing this shirt? I'm pregnant. <laughs> you are. You're very pregnant, and I'm just wondering how that happened in a day. Oh, I'm half Mexican. Really? Dude, no way. Are you that guy from the show that catches the molesters? What are you doing here? I'm actually taping the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not a molester. <laughs> <laughs> 
The 40-year-old virgin who knocked up Sarah Marshall and felt super bad about it. I picture soulless wax doll creatures crawling around their condos in the hills, their pallid bodies encrusted with leftover cocaine and hooker bile. I know that they consider that this sort of movie makes back its budget and a few bucks more, so ultimately it's worth producing and releasing. What I can't fathom is when they stand up and scrape away the flaking human excrement from what remains of their faces to stare at their wraith-like reflections in the bathroom cabinet that houses their cat. How can they say with a straight face that they don't hate movies? T41YOVWKUSMAS That film cost $1.3 million, which is nothing in this industry. But that money could have saved thousands of lives and invigorated a small country if donated to Medicine Sans Frontier. This film officially kills sick children. Hollywood, if you're watching, I am so goddamn available right now. No hard feelings. Neil Taylor of KDS 2.0 with a book you might want to check out. Stormfront. Book one of the Dresden Files. Let me take you to a world full of magic, adventure and mystery. There's vampires and werewolves, and of course wizards. In fact, our hero is a wizard called Harry. No, no, not that Harry. Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden. Here on Gonzo Planet, Alex has been doing a whole series of shows on the Harry Potter books and films. So I thought I'd take a look at the first Dresden Files book, Stormfront. Like Harry Potter, magic is a key part of the story. Unlike Harry Potter, the wizarding world isn't set apart from the human world. Also, to be fair, Harry Potter is aimed at kids, whereas the Dresden Files are definitely more adult. So join me as we step into the world of Harry Dresden. First off, who is Harry Dresden? Well, he's Chicago's only professional wizard. In fact, you can find his ad in the yellow pages. Harry Dresden, wizard. Lost items found, paranormal investigations, consulting, advice, reasonable rates, no love potions, endless purses, parties, or other entertainment. So what does all that mean? Well, in short, Harry is a PI and part-time consultant for the Chicago PD's Special Investigations. SI is where all the strange cases go, or the cases that just don't seem to add up in the normal, everyday world which you and I live in. The first book in the Dresden Files is Stormfront. Harry is hired to find a missing husband and called in by SI to investigate a gruesome double murder where the victims have had their hearts ripped out. This book introduces us very well to the world of Harry Dresden, where we meet Karen Murphy, head of SI, and gentleman Johnny Marcone, 
the Lord of Chicago crime and constant antagonist of Harry Dresden. But if that wasn't enough trouble for Harry, he gets on the wrong side of Madame Bianca St. Clair, the owner of the Velvet Rooms, a high-class escort agency, and the head of the Red Court of Vampires in Chicago. With a missing husband, a crazed killer, and a new drug third eye on the scene, Harry has his work cut out for him on this case. Now, if you're into detective stories or fantasy novels, you really owe it to yourself to check out the books. Jim Butcher really mixes the magic and human world in a really interesting way where magic isn't the fix-all to problems. There's rules and consequences to using them. If you are looking for a more adult take on the world of magic, mixing with the mortal world, then the Dresden Files is a great place to start. Mixing magic and detective stories works out very well, even if they are a few happy coincidences to help Harry along the way. The humour is smart and funny, and the characters are memorable. Stormfront is a fun read and will leave you wanting to go back into the world of Harry Dresden. And there's plenty more books to keep you going. The series now has 13 books with a 14th Cold Days on the way. Step into the Dresden Files and you're going to be entertained and thrilled by the adventures of Harry Dresden. One last thing about the Dresden Files before I go. If you like the idea but don't have time to read, then check out the audiobooks. They're well worth checking out. They're read by James Masters. Yes, Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He brings the stories to life in the way he reads them. And you've also heard him in this article. So check out The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. I've been Neil Teller, and this has been an audio article for Gonzo Planet. My name is Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden. Conjure it by your own risk. When things get strange, when what goes bump in the night flicks on the lights, when no one else can help you, give me a call. I'm in the book. James Batchelor of Game Burst, back with some New Year's resolutions. The Nintendo Difference. New Year's resolutions. This is the Nintendo Difference, a Gonzo Planet audio column written and produced by James Batchelor. The Nintendo Difference explores topics surrounding the veteran format holder as it endeavours to maintain its reputation for providing unique gaming experiences in an increasingly competitive market. Last month I looked back at the first nine months of the 3DS's life and how it has started to recover from a shaky launch. This month I will be looking forward to 2012, not only at how Nintendo can continue to breathe new life into its latest handheld, but also at how it can lay the foundations for the success of Wii U and generally fend off competition in the console and handheld space from Microsoft and Sony. These are my suggestions as to what Nintendo's New Year's resolutions should be. For the 3DS, more original first-party games. For the majority of 2011, 3DS depended on updated versions of previous games. While these updates were still accomplished titles, the lineup lacked the excitement of fresh ideas until the very end of the year when we saw the launch of Super Mario 3D Land. In 2012, Nintendo needs to prove that it is still the company that can produce titles as impressive as Ocarina of Time, Star Fox 64 and Mario Kart. Rather than relying on its back catalogue, the company needs to push forward with new iterations on its most popular franchises, the killer apps, the system sellers, the brands that draw in thousands of fans. We already have Luigi's Mansion 2, Kid Icarus Uprising and a new Paper Mario on the way, as well as a Smash Brothers in the far distant future, but they can't stop there. Give us a new Star Fox, a new Metroid, a handheld Donkey Kong Country, an inevitable new generation of Pokemon, an F-Zero, a new Advance Wars... 
And Nintendo can't just roll out carbon copies of previous games with a new suffix and a lick of paint. It really needs to think about what you can do with its franchises to make them feel as fresh and original as their first games were. Reinvention or evolution, either will prevent stagnation. And they don't even have to be released this year. Fans certainly wouldn't appreciate their favourite titles being rushed. But at least give us a hint that there is more to come. Give us something to look forward to. After all, anticipation is part and parcel of being a Nintendo fan. More high-profile third-party releases. The key to success for any gaming device is third-party support. While Nintendo consoles have always been dominated by first-party titles, without third-party publishers filling the gaps, there is no variety and the audience is limited. And as I've mentioned before, Nintendo promised stronger third-party support for 3DS, with more than 70 games announced at E3 2010. In the years since, that number has dwindled, and those that did make it to shelves haven't set the world on fire. There are no third-party must-haves. 2012 is off to a better start. Resident Evil Revelations is due this month, followed by Metal Gear Solid Snake Eater 3D in March. But more is needed. Where is the Assassin's Creed we were promised? Whereas the Batman, the Saints Row, the Need for Speed? Why was there no 3DS version of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3? And when will the 3DS get that exclusive killer app, that title that makes gamers everywhere sit up and take notice, like Grand Theft Auto Chinatown was for the DS? As much as the honest is on publishers to take a risk and invest in a high-profile and an ideally core-focused game, rather than the plethora of puzzle games and pet sims that dogged the original DS, Nintendo has a responsibility too. It needs to make the 3DS even more welcoming to these companies, to establish a user base that publishers can't afford to ignore, to encourage and actively seek exclusive deals with the biggest names in games. Maintain Momentum I interviewed an exec from Nintendo UK back in July about the early performance of 3DS. One of the things he told me was that the platform holder was trying to raise awareness of how much the 3DS can do. The 3D effect was obviously the initial selling point, but its other features have been even more compelling. And one thing he said really struck me, that Nintendo had designed the 3DS to offer something new every day. Now, whether that arguably crucial message has been communicated effectively or not is debatable, but the truth in his words can't be disputed. It is possible to experience something different every day. There's the chance to streak past people, swap puzzles and complete the quests. Daily Pokemon downloads on the free 3D viewer app. Weekly content uploads for DSiWare, virtual console titles and new 3D games. Mario Kart 7 Ghost Data to challenge. 3D videos to watch, ranging from cartoons to Zelda Symphony recording sessions and magic trick instructional videos. Eurosport broadcasts, not to mention the new games hitting retail. Nintendo needs to keep this coming. Not only more digital content, whether small like Ghost Data or big new games, but also new forms of entertainment to enjoy. The Wii Channel system held such promise, but in five years all we received was a voting channel, a horoscope channel, and a fairly decent Nintendo channel with videos of upcoming games. Sony and Microsoft are constantly pushing new forms of entertainment through their console's dashboards, and Nintendo can't afford to be seen as lacking in content. For the Wii U Nintendo's next console will be crucial to the future and fortunes of the company. The firm is already seen as a generation behind in terms of gaming technology, and now is the time to catch up. With that in mind, these are some of the priorities I think Nintendo needs to be working on this year. Better launch lineup. And none of this three-month launch window rubbish, we mean day one. The 3DS's launch day lineup was okay, but lacked a system seller. That didn't arrive until Ocarina of Time 3D three months later. Nintendo has already said it has learnt its lesson, 
when the Wii U hits shelves, it needs to prove it. For one thing, Nintendo needs to work closer with publishers so that the third-party lineup stands up just as well as the first-party one. Ubisoft's inevitable wave of rehashed titles needs to be countered with a strong third-party offering, something new, something that isn't already available on 360 or PS3. There also needs to be at least one massive Nintendo title on day one. The inevitable mini-game collection slash tech demo that will be bundled with the console will fare well enough, but the company can't afford to wait three months for the first decent Mario, Zelda, Metroid or Pokemon. It needs an essential purchase for fans from the very beginning. Just one will do, and it doesn't even need to be an epic time sync title like Super Mario Galaxy or Skyward Sword. It doesn't even have to be a traditional flagship franchise. The GameCube launched with the brief but brilliant Luigi's Mansion, followed two weeks later by Smash Brothers. Such a strategy would work on Wii U, give us an entertaining spin-off, or something with plenty of replayability. Or both. It just needs to be a title with that special Nintendo magic that will keep players hooked and satisfied until the next major release a few months later. Speaking of which, give us plenty to look forward to. The day after the 3DS's launch was a humbling one. Once the hype of owning a new Nintendo handheld had died down, fans began planning their next purchase, looking forward to the titles that justified the money they had just invested. But there was nothing on the horizon. Ocarina of Time was months away, and everything else was even more distant. Bitterness set in, and by the time Zelda arrived, the feeling of disappointment was hard to shake off. Wii U needs to have a steady supply of big games for its first year. Things can slow down after that, but the momentum of that first 12 months is crucial. If Wii U is launched at Christmas, there needs to be another AAA title waiting in the wings, arriving on shelves in, say, February or March, then one in May, then one in August, then a strong Christmas lineup, and there needs to be a sense of what games are coming for each window. Gamers should be planning their future purchases, not searching for them. Embrace online. It sounds like an obvious statement, but this is Nintendo we're talking about. The company has been stubbornly archaic in its attitude towards online services such as multiplayer, download games and entertainment. 3DS has been a welcome step change. Friends lists, Mario Kart clans, virtual console and apps and plenty of video content. But in the console space, Nintendo really needs to up the ante. It needs to support massive-scale multiplayer matches, cater to communities with friends lists, chats, messages, and everything else that comes to be expected of an online gaming service. The digital store needs to be packed with content, whether gaming, videos, or other forms of entertainment. It needs to be easy to access, and it needs to work first time. And most crucially of all, it needs to be available on day one. Waiting until May for the 3DS's eShop didn't build anticipation, it just gave gamers time to realise how ridiculous it was not to have that service accessible from the very beginning. Imagine if the iPad 3 couldn't access iTunes without being tethered to a PC or Mac for the first two months. Be clear. Efficient communication will be instrumental in converting people to Wii U. With 3DS, Nintendo had the task of convincing potential buyers that the handheld was in fact a different machine to the original DS. And with Wii U, that is even more important. Core gamers need to know that things have improved since the original Wii. Casual gamers need to know that they are buying something different, not just a rehashed version of the console that they have gathering dust by the TV. Nintendo need to make sure that everyone, from hardcore gamer to silver surfer, understands the advancing graphics, the new online functions, the range of games that will be available, and crucially, how that tablet controller works. The E3 teaser caused confusion amongst even the most experienced games journalists. Was the console's innards contained within the controller and transmitted it to the TV? 
No, there was a console. Could the tablet be used on the move? No, it needs to be within the same room as the console. How many tablet controllers could be used with the Wii U? One, no two, no one. Mm, we'll get back to you. With so many complex tablet devices on the market, confusing the wider mainstream audience that Nintendo inevitably and sensibly wants to attract, it needs to be very clear with how the Wii U works and what its limitations and, of course, advantages are. Know your audiences. That's right, audiences. Plural. If we're being general, Nintendo has two. One is the core gamers, the enthusiasts, the avid Nintendo fans that have stuck by the company since the days of the NES. The other is the casual gamers, the mainstream, the families that bring out their Wii every Christmas, the grandparents, the women that use Wii Fit once a month, the commuters that use their time on the train to get in a little brain training. Since the Wii launched, Nintendo has been trying to establish a balance catering before these two audiences, but now it needs to have that balance finalised. Wii U will need the complete support of both audiences, core and casual, to be as big a success as its predecessor and to compete with whatever Microsoft and Sony are working on. This means regular titles for each audience, new online services that cater to different tastes. Nintendo is essentially going to have to do twice the work of an ordinary platform holder, but if they can manage it, they will have an offering as enticing as that of any Apple product. In general, while Nintendo's priorities will understandably focus on 3DS and Wii U, there are plenty of general improvements and new strategies the company could benefit from. New IP the likes of Mario, Zelda and Metroid and Pokemon are among the most resilient properties in gaming, remaining strong and relevant where so many others have fallen into obscurity. But over-reliance on them can restrict both creativity and appeal. Nintendo needs fresh ideas, new characters, new worlds, new IP. When was the last time the company introduced an original franchise? Pikmin? Which was, you know, mid-2000s? The last five years alone have seen the advent of Bioshock, Assassin's Creed, Uncharted, Mass Effect and countless others. It's time to see if Nintendo's still got that creative spark. Push your online releases. The moment there's an Xbox Live sale or a new PSN game, the news finds its way across the internet, thanks in no small part to generous prodding by Microsoft and Sony. Nintendo needs to double their efforts in this. There are some absolute gems on WiiWare and DSiWare, most notably the recent 3DS title Pull Blocks, but they rarely seem to grab the headlines. Assuming Nintendo creates a more advanced and regularly updated online service, the company needs to promote new releases with more than just its weekly press release. Don't let Wii die. The GameCube and N64 were all but abandoned months before their successes hit shelves. But this is the first time Nintendo has had a console that can live on beyond its natural life cycle. Nintendo America President Reggie fils has already said he believes both Wii and Wii U can coexist. Nintendo need to make good on this promise, to keep catering to those who don't plan to upgrade to Wii U, or even those that don't understand the differences between console generations. Or at the very least, send off Wii with a decent swan song title. And no, Mario Party 9 does not count. Don't forget... People have played your games before. Titles like Wii Sports, Wii Play and Wii Party are designed to be played by anyone, regardless of whether or not they've played a video game before. And in recent years, Nintendo have added features to help those with limited gaming experience so they can play more traditional titles like New Super Mario Bros. Wii, Super Mario Galaxy, Donkey Kong Country Returns and The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. Fine, 
cater to the newcomers, but don't do so at the expense of those who have been playing Nintendo games for years. Skyward Sword was horrendously limiting for Zelda fans, holding their hand throughout the entire quest. Nintendo needs to make its games more accessible to its loyal followers. Even a skip tutorial button would do. Live like there's no tomorrow. It's a bit of a pessimistic thought to end on, but bear with me. The games industry has changed forever. The rise of Apple and Steam, the recession and more means that the traditional console cycle is becoming less viable as a business model. The next generation of consoles could well be the last as we know it. That means the time for playing safe is over. Plus, should the Wii U fail to match the success of the original Wii, Nintendo could well be forced to follow Sega's example and drop out of the hardware market. Hopefully that won't be the case, but if it is, Nintendo needs to make the most of its time. It needs to take risks, be adventurous, and show that it is still the games company it once was. Only that way can Nintendo continue to stand toe-to-toe with Microsoft, Sony, Apple, Valve, and whatever new changes the industry throws at it. Or at the very worst, it can go down fighting. Fox returns to talk about his brand new game and the Kickstarter that goes with it. Hi everyone, Michael from Little Metal Dog Show here. Once again, and to be honest, after a bit of nudging and trying to remind me, Alex has said that I can come back and do some more stuff. Um, It's been a while, and for that I can only apologise. But I do have an excuse. Not a written note for me mum, unfortunately. But, it is an old cliché, I have been busy. The last time I spoke, I was on about the fact that I was opening up a new company called Sprocket Games, and I was planning on getting two games out there. Well, the good thing is, we're halfway along the line. Our first game, Ace of Spies, which is a design by me in collaboration with a friend of mine, Mark Rivera, has been picked up by an American company who are looking to publish it, which is pretty awesome. So since the news of that came through, I've been busy sorting out contracts, liaising with the company, making sure that the artwork is cool, and seriously, it's bloody awesome. But it does mean that I have been pretty much the busiest man in the history of the world ever. Hence the fact that it is 7.30 in the morning and I'm sitting here recording this. Because pretty much this is the only free time I've got at the moment. Anyhow, I wanted to talk a little bit about the game that I've got coming out. But mainly about how it's going to be coming out. Because the game is going to be funded through Kickstarter. Now, a lot of you out there will be aware of what Kickstarter is, but for the folks who aren't, basically Kickstarter is a crowdfunding website. What happens is, you basically create a campaign that is going to, hopefully, capture the interest of people who visit the site. Most people will make a video, write down a little history, a story of the project, but one of the most important things about Kickstarter is the rewards that people offer. These are sort of little bonuses that the person who's running the campaign will offer to folks who are willing to put money up front for a product. And in the case of, well, for example, board games, which is what I know, you're often looking at stuff like promotional cards, maybe signed copies of the game. But this goes all the way up to things like having your name in the game or possibly having your face in the game, potentially even having an effect on how the game is made. Some designers have offered backers the opportunity to actually get involved in the final development stages of the game, which is interesting, but mm, not for me. I prefer to go out there with a fully finished product. 
Now, Ace of Spies is going to be coming out, but we are going to do a funding run on Kickstarter. If you're to go to the site, which is kickstarter.com, and just tap in the word game, you will see so many different things come up. Since the site was launched, hundreds of card and board games have gone through the site. Some have been spectacularly successful. Some of them have been really unsuccessful. And it's strange because it's not just small little startup companies who are using the site. Big companies like Queen Games, Eagle and Griffin Games over in the States, they're all trying out the site themselves as well to see if ideas that they've come up with for games basically will float. It's a good way of gauging people's opinions on what products you're putting out. However, if you're looking to get in on the ground floor of something that is completely different, that potentially some companies might not touch because they think it's just that bit too obscure, wandering through the annals of Kickstarter is a fantastic thing to do. At this moment in time, there's stuff up there including Zpocalypse, an epic zombie survival board game from a brand new startup called Greenbrier. Or perhaps you might like Building an Elder God, which is a card game based around the HP Lovecraft Cthulhu mythos. Or maybe you're just looking for some handmade dice. These are the kind of things that you can see on the site. And it's a really, really wonderful place to try and get a bit of a handle on what people are doing and where people's minds are at the moment. Some people have been really fussy about the fact that larger companies are using Kickstarter basically as a pre-order system for new games. But in all honesty, if it's in the rules, I say why not? However, if you're looking for some gems, go digging. Try and find some other little weird stuff in there. If you like the look of a game, just back it. By backing it on Kickstarter, it often means that you're getting the game cheaper and earlier than anybody else. Now, unfortunately, if you are in the UK or anywhere else around the world that's not America, you might have to pay a little bit extra for the product to ship to you. But have a think about it. There are hundreds of people out there who've got these great ideas, who are brave enough to step up and try and get that idea out there. And by you choosing to back this idea, you're helping make their little dream come true. Terrifyingly, in a few weeks, I'm going to be one of those people. And I can only hope that people pick up on the campaign and like what we've created. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon. Next up, I talk about Wrecked Revenge Revisited with James Perkins. This is a summation to our two text reviews that can be found on the website Gonzo Planet. This is Alex, and uh, this is a new kind of review for Gonzo Planet, whereby uh, we got a review and then a summation at the end. So if you want to go back, read all the text first uh, for mine and James's reviews, and uh, then come back here and listen to us in audio form, and we will sum up. Hello, James. Hello, Alex. Okay, so when somebody rage quits, it stalls and brings you straight back out to the, the menu. Yeah. Is that, how badly does that affect your online gaming? It- really badly affects it because say you have four players and one drops out it kicks everyone out rather than just carrying on like like with any other online racing game if somebody drops out they just like okay you dropped out and we'll just knock a place off of the final like table and just carry on but the fact that oh if somebody's losing they're just going to leave and just ruin the complete experience for everyone else it's that that's do do you lose the xp on that as well i'm not sure whether you lose the xp or not i don't because imagine playing a game of call of duty and someone rage quits or loses connection it doesn't even have to be to do with rage quitting and then everyone loses the xp they'd gained for the last five six minutes of of gameplay it's it's frustrating as hell this seems rudimentary and and, uh, should have been combated yeah 
Another point raised is the lack of AI for opponents in single-player mode. There's no campaign mode, which it almost seems like that, that would have been relatively straightforward to do. You just have six races in a row, set the difficulty for your opponents, and I mean, that, that's... It's, it's a bit like, say, Ma- Mario uh, Kart 64, you know, um, where you would have the cup with four different races and you'd get points for finishing first, second, third, yeah. fourth, and then, like, a podium at the end. But yeah. no, nothing like that. It's just challenges, which in most games, challenge is just an extra, but challenge mm-hmm. is the entire the single player, yeah, the only yeah. thing you can do in single player. And you can't help but uh, draw comparisons with Trials because it's asking you to do something very specific within a time limit in a moving vehicle with lots of chaos and action going on and some of the times it's weapon-based, some of the times it's skill-based. It pales in comparison to the main game of Trials HD. I hate drawing the comparison, but frankly, Trials is released today. Yep. Trials Evolution, that is. And uh, it's, it's the same price. And that's, that's another major point we're going to come to in just a second. So, so yeah, single-player campaign probably should have been in there if they were going to consider this as their asking price. Because you can't always expect everyone to be online on multiplayer. But on a plus point, there's the potential that this game has. If the uh, price point does go down, and a lot of people buy it all at once, this could be great. Yeah, definitely. I mean, whether or not they would think about bringing the price down permanently or whether or not to put it on sale quite soon. Because I'm guessing they'll look at their sales figures uh, relatively soon and think, oh god, we haven't sold that much, we need to sort of do something. They, they need uh, an incentive whether or not to release some free DLC for, say, a single player campaign and bring the price down. And then that way, you know, the likes of us who are trying to promote the game will then have something even more positive to say about it and say, look, this is what you can get for this price. It's a good price. It's great fun. Go and get it. And then more people will buy it and more people will start talking about it, which is essentially what they need to do to sell many copies. So. Now, to clarify, I'm not against the notion of them bringing out DLC for this thing, but since the initial package on its own seems like it's fairly thin on features, to pack some of it so quickly into extra DLC at 400 points to an already overpriced game seems somewhat short-sighted. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because, like again, to bring it back to Trials, Trials HD had plenty of uh, DLC. It's got, like, two or three packs at 400 points each, same thing. But the game was so full of stuff to do that you were never off it, always trying to beat your friend's uh, speed times and things like that. Yeah. There's some real high-quality games. Some of the best games of this generation are 1,200-point XBLA games, so it's yeah. up against it. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, more recently, we've had uh, Fez. I mean, I know it's a completely different game, but mm. it's a absolutely fantastic game for 800 points. I mean, 800 points is, what, six... £6.60 something, I think. I can tell you exactly how much it is. The metric, folks, if uh, you need to know, is uh, number of points times 0.85. So that's £6.80. £6.80 for Fez. Hours and hours of content, uh, great puzzles that will make you rack your brains, whereas we've got Wreck, very, as we, as we said, very thin on the ground with content, for mm. 400 points more, so that's an extra £3.40 mm. for, for less content. And... It, and 
that is why that nobody is online when when we tried to search for games the other day. Yeah. Um, we sat there, just the two of us, waiting for someone else to jump into our yeah. room. Didn't turn up. And the other thing that's somewhat worrying is that I checked my position on the leaderboards, and the leaderboards only went up to about four thousand three hundred and twenty at the time, which means they have not had explosive sales in the past couple of weeks. No, and and the people who have picked it up, those four thousand people, have played it for a week and then put it down. Yeah. Because because no one else is playing it, so. But imagine if everyone on your friends list had this and everyone was engaging in. It's, it's a maximum of four players at a time, but you just get you, you know chuck your entire party in, and uh, it'd just be absolute chaos. It'd be brilliant. I think you know. So yeah, we are officially pitching this to Gonzo Planet, but not for the asking price. No. The other thing is, of course, that if you do spike for the DLC and spend the extra four hundred on it. Everyone else in your party has to have done the same thing as well, yeah. I'd imagine, because otherwise how else are you going to play these extra two courses? Yeah, I think it's uh, six extra challenges in single player mm. and the two online courses. So as you said, um, with the distinct lack of people playing it online, yeah. uh, it's going to be even more so if you buy the DLC and they don't, because yeah. that's a very expensive game for what it is. Well, no, all it'll be is if you're setting up a game, then those two will be greyed out. So, yeah. Like I said, it just feels like they took a piece off the full package and said, we can charge extra for that afterwards. It probably wasn't, and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Like I said, I want these guys to do more games, but it feels, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't seem like they've done themselves any favours. No, it's come back to bite them in the backside. Well, we shall see. I will mention customization in a positive light because there are thousands of different setups you can have for your car and you know almost all of them look really awesome as well. Yeah. Which is surprising. It actually brings up more of a feeling of micro machines than even micro machines does because the little red, blue, yellow and green cars didn't actually look like actual micro machines. These do. So we shall see what 505 games do in the next few weeks and months. If nothing else happens, when, I'm giving you a guarantee here, it comes down in price at Christmas for a short period, pick it up. And if we all pick it up at the same time, we can have a very fun Christmas. Hilarity will ensue, believe me. <laughs> cool. Okay, so this has been Alex Shaw. And I've been James Perkins. For Gonzo Planet, thank you very much for listening. Finally, a bedtime story. The Gruffalo by Julia Donaldson. Read by Alex Shaw. and have lunch in my underground house. It's terribly kind of you, Fox, but no, I'm going to have lunch with a gruffalo. A gruffalo? What's a gruffalo?
A gruffalo? Why, don't you know? He has terrible tusks and terrible claws and terrible teeth in his terrible jaws. Where are you meeting him? Here, by these rocks. And his favourite food is... Roasted fox? Roasted fox, I'm off, a fox said. Goodbye, little mouse. And away he sped. Silly old fox, doesn't he know there's no such thing as a gruffalo? On went the mouse through the deep dark wood. An owl saw the mouse, and the mouse looked good. Where are you going to, little brown mouse? Come and have tea in my treetop house. It's frightfully nice of you, owl, but no, I'm going to have tea with a gruffalo. A gruffalo? What's a gruffalo? A gruffalo? Why, don't you know? He has knobbly knees and turned-out toes and a poisonous wart on the end of his nose. Where are you meeting him? Here, by the stream. And his favourite food is... Owl ice cream. Owl ice cream? To wit to woo! Goodbye, little mouse. And away owl flew. Silly old owl. Doesn't he know? There's no such thing as a gruffalo. the mouse through the deep dark wood. A snake saw the mouse, and the mouse looked good. Where are you going to, little brown mouse? Come for a feast in my log pile house. It's wonderfully good of you, snake, but no, I'm having a feast with a gruffalo. A gruffalo? What's a gruffalo? A gruffalo? Why, didn't you know? His eyes are orange, his tongue is black, he has purple prickles all over his back. Where are you meeting him? Here, by this lake. And his favourite food is... Scrambled snake. Scrambled snake, it's time I hid. Goodbye, little mouse. And away snake slid. Silly old snake. Doesn't he know there's no such thing as a gruffle... Oh... But who is this creature with terrible claws and terrible teeth in his terrible jaws? He has knobbly knees and turned-out toes and a poisonous wart on the end of his nose. His eyes are orange, his tongue is black, he has purple prickles all over his back. Oh, help! Oh, no! It's a Gruffalo! My favourite food, the Gruffalo said. You'll taste good on a slice of bread. Good, said the Mouse. Don't call me good. I'm the scariest creature in this wood. Just walk behind me and you'll see everyone is afraid of me. <laughs> All right said the Gruffalo, bursting with laughter. You go ahead, and I'll follow after. They walked and walked till the Gruffalo said, I hear a hiss in the leaves ahead. 
It's Snake, said the mouse. Why, Snake, hello. Snake took one look at the Gruffalo. Oh, crumbs, he said. Goodbye, little mouse. And off he slid to his log pile house. You see, said the mouse, I told you so. Amazing, said the Gruffalo. They walked some more till the Gruffalo said, I hear a hoot in the trees ahead. It's Owl, said the mouse. Why, Owl, hello. Owl took one look at the Gruffalo. Oh dear, he said. Goodbye, little mouse. And off he flew to his treetop house. You see, said the mouse, I told you so. Astounding, said the Gruffalo. They walked some more till the Gruffalo said, I can hear feet on the path ahead. It's Fox, said the mouse. Why, Fox, hello. Fox took one look at the Gruffalo. Oh, help, he said. Goodbye, little mouse. And off he ran to his underground house. Well, Gruffalo, said the mouse, you see, everyone is afraid of me. But now my tummy's beginning to rumble. My favourite food is Gruffalo Crumble. Gruffalo Crumble, the Gruffalo said, and quick as the wind he turned and fled. quiet in the deep dark wood. The mouse found a nut, and the nut was good. You've been listening to the Gonzo Planet Audio Magazine, Volume 2. There will be another one in a few months' time. If you would like to create text, audio, or video articles for the Freelancers Guild, drop me an email at gonzoplanet at gmail.com. And remember to check out the forums if you want to go to Gplex. Also, and I don't ask this often enough, the weekly download numbers for this show range from 500 to 1,000, usually when Daniel Floyd's on. It could be doing so much better if I was any good at self-promotion. If all 500 regular listeners gave me a positive iTunes review, then this show, that I'm very proud of, would jump straight to the top of the podcast charts and bring in many more members to our wonderful community. Hopefully not twats, though. I'm arrogant and showboating enough on first listen to push most of them away. It's kind of a secret weapon to ensure we don't achieve mass appeal. So if you haven't given a review yet, there is a way you can directly benefit the show. Also, consider the Gonzo Planet Facebook page. We've got a whopping um, 18 friends who like Gonzo Planet, and it's received, I think, 65 likes for various articles. We push that way into the hundreds, and we're going to get a lot more visitors to this page. Which, in turn, will bring in new people. But not twats. I hope. See you next week for the first of the Alien Reviews, as we begin the road to Prometheus. I've been Alex Shaw. Good night and good luck. Sometimes, something beautiful happens in this world. You don't know how to express yourself, so... You just gotta sing.
haven't felt great It felt so good when I did it with my penis A girl let me do it, it literally just happened Having sex can make a nice man out the meanest Never guess where I just came from, I had sex If I had to describe the feeling, it was the best When I had the sex, man my penis felt great And I called my parents right after I was done Oh hey, didn't see you there, guess what I just did Had sex, undressed, saw her boobies and the rest Was sure nice of her to let you do that Of my life. I'm so humbled by a girl's ability to let me do it. Cause honestly, I'd have sex with a pile of manure. With that in mind, the soft, nice smelling girl's better. But she let me wear my chain and my turtleneck sweater. thing this is mca from one of my favorite musical groups the beastie boys now slowly departed good night
shine. 